how do I get somebody excited about it if I can't talk about it? So finding ways to do that without giving away the farm has been really important for us. And I think that engenders a sense of trust almost immediately with candidates, which I think is really important. Hello, and you are listening to the Product Builders Podcast. In each episode, your hosts, Sean O'Shea and Mark Garcia of Majestic Apps, speak with some of today's leading product builders. We dive into their stories and tactical lessons that you can use when building digital products. This episode is brought to you by Majestic Apps. We imagine, design, and build digital products. Ready to create something amazing? Contact us at MajesticApps.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Product Builders Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Garcia, and on today's show, we have Ben Jones joining us. Ben is the creative director at Zenimax Online Studios, which is an award-winning game studio based out of Maryland. Ben, thanks for taking the time out to join us today. We're really excited to have you here. How's everything going? Great to be here. Yeah, going really well. Thanks. Great. And to kick things off, I'd love if you could just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do and where you work. Yeah, so my name is Ben. I've been in video game development for over 20 years. Got my start way back in the day um, on uh, what we call total modifications, which is using existing game to build your own game. A lot of learnings from doing that. And uh, I am now a creative director at ZMX Online, where I spend most of my days running a very, very large design team, but also driving our development team as a whole towards discrete outcomes, right? And really, really targeted goals, which happen to change all the time to the crazy number of inputs that we're seeing in the world these days. Awesome. Ben, can you give us a little bit of background on what exactly ZeniMax Online Studios is and what you guys do over there? So ZeniMax Online Studios um, is a part of ZeniMax Bethesda, which up until relatively recently was an independent publisher of very large AAA video games that not too long ago was acquired by Xbox and the Microsoft Corporation to be part of the greater Xbox game studios. So we develop video games in-house. We're primarily known for Elder Scrolls Online, uh, which is the extension of the very well-established Elder Scrolls universe that we also publish here at Bethesda. But I am driving an independent team working on a new intellectual property um, and have been doing that for about four and a half years. Awesome. And so you are the creative director there you mentioned that you are working on new intellectual property. Can you talk a little bit about what your day-to-day looks like and what your responsibilities are as the creative director? Well, one of the things about this job you learn really early on is that every day is different. Every morning brings unique challenges and and whatever you had on the books is likely not how you're going to end up spending your day. It's very dynamic. It's very fluid. And in terms of my responsibilities, as I noted before, I'm responsible for a design team of about 50 people. We've got a development team of nearly 200 at this point spread all over the globe. So myself, as well as my development management partners, manage the entirety of the project at this point. This is a considerable investment and a very large scope project. So a lot of that manifests in day-to-day in terms of maintaining communications, keeping the trains running, essentially, ensuring that everyone has the information and the resources that they need to solve problems all the way down the chain. That's really the core of my job. Great. And so, I mean, I came from that creative director and design track as well, but I feel like what we do is uh, inherently very different, right? You're in gaming. I am not. So I'm curious to know how you got into gaming to begin with and what your career path was like that led you to your current role today. I was very fortunate to grow up in a technology household. I had two parents that worked at tech um, in the 80s and the 90s, doing really, really progressive things at that time. So we always had computers. 
I don't think I had a video game console outside of a Game Boy <laughs> for most of my life. I always had access to great computers and I used them to play a lot of games, both with my father and with my friends and, and just on my own. And eventually that manifested in me figuring out how to tinker with games and change settings in them, manipulate the environments in the world to fit you know, my own fantasies, my own ideas. It became somewhat of a hobby. And I found a fellow group of tinkerers online and we ended up building what ended up being a very successful game called Day of Defeat. By the time I was in college, we sold that to Valve um, in Seattle. It's now a very large corporation. <laughs> yeah, very long story there, but that's how I got my start in games. I didn't really know that game development was a real thing that you could do, like an actual paying job, right? I went to college to study business and had no intention of pursuing games full time, but that really changed once I understood that it was not only possible to do this professionally, but to thrive and to really build a successful life doing so. Yeah. I mean, as a fellow creative that got into design almost by accident, and I've spoken about this before in previous podcasts, but kind of went down the same path where I didn't realize that my interest in art and design would be actually something that could be a paying job that I could do for the rest of my life. And similarly, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of gaming as a child. I, what kid doesn't have experience playing games, right? I don't think I ever thought that would be something that could be an actual job. As far as the gaming world, and we're talking about designing games, which is a far departure from what my own experience is, which I do kind of mobile apps, there is a bit of an overlap, right? Because we are talking about user experiences and creating these interactive digital worlds. Can you tell me a little bit about what product development looks like for you in the gaming industry? There are going to be some overlaps here, but probably a good number of differences. I think at the core of it, like most good product design, in my opinion, it starts with UX, really strong focused on the end user experience that you're shooting for, right? So target market and demographics, all that really play into it, right? But us, really, it's more of a tangible thing, right? What is the experience that we're looking to generate? What kind of emotions are we looking to stir? We use that as a guiding light to build a number of different principles, things that we call pillars in our industry, right? That the entire product is shaped around. If we did nothing else, what are we seeking to accomplish? Really focus on those in the early days when our teams are very small and try to determine ultimately where we want to be many years later, both in terms of the market, but also in terms of the experience. So those are our guiding lights and they take us all the way through really extensive user testing. Once we have something in software, even a framework, a very simple framework that can be understood by even players of a more discerning nature, right? People that are used to testing or playing games. We try to get that into their hands as quickly as possible to get their feedback, to understand whether or not we're on the right path. Where are we missing? Where did we overestimate the capabilities of our audience, right? Like all of those things are really, really important to do when it's cheap, when you have something simple and basic, what we call gray box or sketches, right? We do this in terms of concept art, but we take it all the way through the software as well. So it's really important to start there before you begin to really flesh things out and to build a team around the solidified endeavor, whatever you have determined to make and proven out in terms of a concept. Awesome. And I know you mentioned building a team as a huge part to your success, which I want to touch on a little later. But you talk about user testing and getting things in front of an audience to, I guess, validate some of the ideas that you have, which is not unlike what we do within the mobile app and product industry. But I'm curious to know where you get your research from or what type of references you look at when you are trying to inform your design decisions. I know with gaming, there's a lot more of a backstory that goes into 
a journey. And so how does that get built? And how do you guys come up with the stories and all of that, I guess, background for the final experience? Great question. There's a couple of different components there. So the first I'll touch upon is the story element, right? So, you know, in my job, we're creating a new IP, right? So a lot of that started with a background for a world, a vision for a high level world that we were going to create and to a degree, a story that we wanted to tell. And the biggest beats of that existed before my time here. My job was to take those components, right? And to really put flesh on the bone, right? And to create a core team that understood what my bosses were seeking to create, to start to put a team around that so that we could then shape it into something that would get us to that point of user testing, right? So from a story perspective, one of the first two hires that we had on the team were what we call a lore master or someone who was responsible for the core tenets of the IP, all of the mythology, right? All of the factual statements, right? Everything that goes into the game that's a, that's a, a noun, that's a, what are all these things? They are responsible for that, right? And the keeper of that. So we work together along with our core creative team to establish what those things are progressively, right? So, and, you know, we iterated on that a time, like our main story has changed 10 times in the last four and a half years, right? As we evolve what the product is and the relationship that we want to have with our, our end user and the emotional experience that we want them to walk away with, right? We continue to tinker and iterate and iterate in order to refine. And that will continue all the way through product launch. So there's a lot of work that goes on in the background there, especially with new IP development. It's trying to create something that's cohesive. You could create great art, but if there isn't a good story to connect with that art, it's going to fall short and vice versa, right? So um, we need to do all that and create a great experience as well. So there's a lot to do there in terms of interconnected parts and each inform the other as you progress. Yes. So actually one of the products that we work on was a comic book app that was primarily meant to allow users to interact and digest comic content from other content creators. But as part of that experience, we had to look at the brand who was producing it and look at kind of the lore of the world that they've already created through their brand. And I remember going through and, and understanding the whole background, and I can't even imagine how long it took to just write this backstory for this brand vision. So along those lines, but how much upfront work does it take before you even start seeing like tangible deliverables and and actual games that people can test or interact with? Well, it really depends on the scope and it really depends on the overall goals of the project. There are some teams that don't prototype and are still very successful that don't seek to establish those things early on. There's a vision and all that matters is the vision and we know we'll get there eventually and we're going to continue to throw things against the wall and see what sticks until we get there. We don't necessarily operate the same way here. For us, it's really about establishing clear, tangible guidelines for the entire team as quickly as we can, right? So um, people will necessarily gravitate towards different aspects of the IP. People are really into the story. Some people love the gameplay and like can't go like, this is what I'm all about. I don't care about story, right? Some people just love the art. It's pretty, I, like, I want to be in this world. It's beautiful. Like, that's what I want, right? And what I'm talking about is developers, but really that also reflects our audience as well, right? So we need to be cognizant of all these elements, if we think we want to have a really successful development process and seek to create connectivity with those elements across the team as quickly as possible, and then reinforce those things over time, which has especially gotten more challenging during COVID, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but those elements, right? Like we, I just worked on a new, uh, a new deck this week, right? To reinforce a talk about as a particular aspect of the narrative and how it's important to ground this in our world, right? And we're going to present that to the whole team next week. And we do that all the time and come back to those things over and over, not just because they evolve, 
but also because we're doing so much, it's really easy to forget. That's how we go about it. It's really important to create those points of connection. Uh, yeah, I mean, creating a new IP. It's interesting that you mentioned the, the comic book approach because working with an existing IP has very different challenges than creating a new one, right? There's, again, there's some degree of overlap there, but like we have that problem in-house, right? Where we have, we're working on the Elder Scrolls Online here. All the product owners and the IP holders for that all work in Rockville at Bethesda, and they've been working on that series forever, right? So we're constantly checking in with them to make sure what we want to do, what we want to be new, right? Fresh experience for a player base that's been around for decades fits in with their interpretation of the IP, what's in their heads, and, and they think is workable, right? Whereas when creating a new IP, our challenge is asking that question of ourselves. <laughs> like, hey, does this really work? Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, like, and really getting into it and continuing to ask ourselves that question over and over as we move through development. So, because ultimately we can build whatever we want, but it being something that lands with an audience that's cohesive and impactful, that's our responsibility. Yeah, that's interesting when you talk about IP versus new IP. And similarly, in the product world for apps and websites and platforms, I feel like there's the same issue of, I guess it's kind of give or take, which is easier, right? Working on an existing platform and having to fit within strict guidelines or cross-check to make sure you are referencing the correct things or starting something from fresh and really having a validated concept, which sounds exciting, but at the same time, one miss also terrifying, right? One miss one misstep, <laughs> and you have gone down this whole path that might be incorrect, and you have to revert. Well, and what's really interesting for both sides, right, is you could have a team that is geared towards either of those. Rarely do you have a team that can do both, right? I have people on my team that are really, really good at this new IP blue sky thing, right? They thrive in it, and there are other members of our team that have suffered greatly under that. They want direction and guidance. Now they need answers. They need the box, right? And it's like, we're working on the box. We're trying. Like there's a lot, <laughs> there are a lot of pieces and lines that we got to connect in order to make it. And so you end up with a really interesting experience there, depending on the team that you have working with you. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and similarly, we have the same, I guess, challenges, if you will, of responsibilities and figuring out the best route to get where we need to go. But I know a big part of your role in developing IP is creating these ecosystems of connected experiences, particularly leveraging like web and mobile. Can you speak a little bit about the importance of web and mobile in what you're developing and what you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't give you specifics as to what our plans are, but I can talk about how important it is generally. Things have changed significantly in the last 10 years, right? Especially with the products that I've worked on connectivity and multiple devices become increasingly important. We want to meet our players where they live. And often that's not sitting in front of their TV. How can we provide them rewarding and meaningful experiences when they're sitting on the bus thinking about, dreaming about playing the game when they go home that night? How, do those, how can we create things that feed into each other, right? So that I can potentially do something on my phone and that benefits an experience that I'm going to have on home or on web. Maybe I'm taking a break at at lunch at work, right? And I'm on the web and, and doing something else there. And that has points of connectivity to my main experience, the core product as well. It's critical that we think about these things more and more because I'm not building products strictly for mobile, right? But it's important that, that I have some kind of presence there, some kind of connectivity. Now, we don't know what that is, right? And I assume our partners at Microsoft and Xbox will, will really help guide us in that over what over the next couple of years of what that the evolved expectation is, I suppose. But for me, 
I think about what I want as a player and I want the ability to plan and add structure and gain reward and communicate with my friends and peers and new people about the things that I want to do. There are products that are really good at that. I think Destiny is a good example of this where their web and mobile presence is, is geared towards connections and thinking about big events, things that are coming. And I think there are evolutions that we'll experience over the course of the next couple of years in terms of that kind of connectivity, the baseline expectation for it. What can I do? What should I be able to do? And I think with those expectations, there's increased challenge in terms of development, right? Because everybody knows that multi-platform development is way more challenging than single-platform development. And often there are discrete teams that are working on each of those ecosystems, right? That you also have to manage and get in line. So I think it's really important. I'm fascinated to see where it goes, especially with all the emerging technology we're seeing. I hear you when you talk about multi-platform development and having to connect ecosystems. It is both exciting because we have the ability to connect with so many different people through so many different touch points. But again, even for myself, having to accommodate different platforms can, can be a headache sometimes and real challenge in figuring out how people are actually interacting with whatever it is I'm putting in front of them. So you mentioned that in the past 10 years, you've seen the industry really change, which I could totally see in terms of how connected we are and advancement of technology. How, if at all, has it changed for you in the past two years? Has COVID and the pandemic and this remote world affected gameplay and gaming experience and the things that you have to address? That's a big one. I mean, we could probably spend hours just talking about this one alone. Yeah, we were fortunate that mostly due to necessity, right? Like I was tasked with creating a new AAA team on here on the East Coast. There aren't a lot of those outside of Epic and maybe Rockstar has some presence in New York still. I mean, there's just not a lot of huge AAA teams on the East Coast. Most of it is very West Coast dominant. So I knew going in that convincing a significant number of people to uproot their lives and move to Maryland was going to be challenging, right? So I did that myself and many of us have chosen to do that variety of reasons, but our team out of necessity has been distributed really since late 2018, early 2019. So pre-pandemic, right? We were looking to establish footprints in various locations. So now we have five satellite offices and of our 200 employees, I would say at least half of them don't have a presence here in Maryland. So we were ahead of the game and a little bit fortunate because of it when COVID arrived and really shifted the entire paradigm as well. So now it's less of a hey, we need to do this because of development and more a, we need to do this period. <laughs> but it really has become more the expectation of our employees as opposed to the exception. So we really leaned into it. I think there was a lot of gnashing of teeth, which is probably true for a lot of people. We are a very large company, been around for a long time and have specific ways of doing business. And this challenged all of that thinking. And it took a bit for us to get aligned with our new path forward, but I'm very happy with where we find ourselves today in terms of a distributed workforce and having people from all over the world contributing to you know, a single project is really, really exciting. As far as your end product and the games themselves, were there any changes in how people were interacting with them because of the pandemic? Did you just find that more people were gaming because they had the time or was it about similar from before? I think we're still digesting data in that area, but what I've seen is course, people had more times on their hand. People were spending more time at home. And the impact on the gaming sector, I think, is pretty pretty clearly defined at this point uh, through our news media. And in terms of you know our profitability over the course of the last couple of years, 
our points of connection with the end user just soared. And, and we had people who had probably left gaming 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, maybe longer, right? Who were coming back and having great entertainment experiences, either with themselves or with their families during the pandemic. I don't play games with my wife often, but there were numerous times where ourselves or with an integrant group that we trusted during COVID would come together and play games. There were a lot of games that came out during that period that had that level of connectivity that really, really found success because of it. And I think everyone was looking for that during that period of time, right? We wanted to forget the hard times for a minute. It's probably why you also saw alcohol sales soar, but that's a different topic. But I think all of us really wanted to just find a, a source of, of entertainment and something we could share with our friends. We couldn't go to movie theaters anymore, right? We couldn't go to concerts. What, what could we do? We could certainly get online and play games with our friends. And we saw a great deal of success because of that during COVID. Great. Yeah. I'm not a large gamer myself. I, I go through peaks and valleys of playing a lot and then not playing for a couple of months. But definitely during the pandemic for me, gaming was something I did go to because what else do you do when you're by yourself for 24 hours, 48 hours at a time, you know? But we touched upon this a few times during this conversation. So now I'm going to circle back to it. I know you mentioned one of the keys to your success in what you do is just having the right team set up and creating the right work environment and collaborations. So high level, can you talk to you as a leader, how do you set yourself and your team up just for success and being able to achieve your deliverables and milestones that you've set out for yourself? There's a lot that goes into this. At the core of, of our team is trust. And something that's relatively rare in the video game industry is honesty and transparency, both in terms of goals, what you're trying to achieve, but also when things change and why they change, right? And what the expectations are now. There isn't a lot of that. And traditionally, there hasn't been in the industry. I, I think it's part of the reason why over the last 10 years, you've seen a significant push in terms of independent development, people wanting a break away from what was a relatively toxic environment, largely across the industry for a variety of reasons, to do things their own way, to try to do things the right way. I myself did that at one point. I know plenty of others that did. And our goal with this team was to take all of the lessons that we had learned over many years of development. What is the best of each of our experiences? And how can we combine that into a, something that we can build a team around, something we can generate a lot of energy behind? And for us, I think the biggest takeaway is trust. We don't work with egomaniacs here. There's a large presence of them in entertainment, but certainly in the game development industry. That's not something that we abide here. It really is about clear communication and transparency and trust and knowing that you will not succeed with all of your goals. That is impossible, right? But that we can approach each failure with, with honesty, with a desire to learn from it and to move forward because that's what makes us better. That's what makes better as developer, but that's what also makes for much better products. So that's kind of the way that we have focused this team. And up until this point, I would say that it's been very successful. Great. And so as far as what goes into developing a game experience, I imagine off the top of my head that your team looks a lot different than let's say a traditional mobile app team, right? You probably have animators, people who can do 3D. You mentioned previously, I believe writers who can do the backstory. Can you give me a breakdown of, of all the different components that go into the team that you have to sort of wrangle or? Yeah, I'll give you a few. Um, there, there are quite a number. What's interesting is that there's more of a correlation between, at least at this stage of mobile development and AAA than there's really ever been, right? So there are certainly animators and 3D modelers in mobile development. 
really the points of separation are scale and fidelity, right? So my fidelity targets are much higher. I'm pushing crazy frame rates with an insane amount of polygons and, and texture budget on a per frame basis, right? Like it's just a different level of expectation. In order to get there, you have to have a much higher investment in terms of technology, but also a, a large number of subject matter experts that can push each of the areas like animation and VFX and SFX, gameplay, right? Uh, environment are on and on and on to quality because the bar for that is is generally generally higher than it has been traditionally in mobile, right? So there are also mobile teams that are of equal in size, but for very different reasons. They could There are plenty of products that generate a significant amount of content at a very rapid basis that could be very product management focused, right? We seek to balance those things here, but I've easily seen mobile teams that are 200 developers and are running all the time. There are a lot more parallels than you would think, but there are, I mean, even on my team, there are at least 20 different disciplines that are working every single day including lore and narrative, like you mentioned as well, that are contributing to what this game will become. Got it. And I mean, one of the challenges I found in product development, and particularly now that we have gone fully remote, is just collaboration and communication. Being in office, it was a lot easier to just kind of walk up to someone's desk and and have those water cooler talks and just check in on a project. With a team your size that has just, you mentioned like 20 different groups that might be working on a single project at any given time. Are there any particular ways that you foster collaboration and communication? How do you really make sure a project is going the way it should when you do have so many different people working spread out across so many different locations? A couple of good questions in there. I'll start with the last, which is the proof is really in the pudding there, right? For us, those results are tangible. We can see and feel them on a daily basis. So that's very helpful in that regard. We've employed a number of different methods, some more successful than others over the course of the last couple of years to try to get back to what you're talking about, those water cool moments, just because we all thought when we did this, there was a great hallelujah after the first six to eight weeks of being in COVID that like we were able to function and still do our jobs. And I think since that time, we've spent a significant amount of effort seeking to understand where that was no longer the case or where it had changed. And the water cool moments are a big part of that, simply because... When you're on a development floor and you have the ability to just walk to the hall between meetings and stop by somebody's desk for two minutes and hey that thing oh yeah yeah let's talk about that boom 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 make a decision okay great thanks I'll talk we'll talk about this later that creates so much I don't want to use synergy but it creates it creates so much more better connectivity right and a, a clearer sense of understanding than I think a Slack conversation does and we use Slack a lot I think there's a ton of utility there with dedicated rooms for each team or specific topics where people chat on these things all the time and can more like passively, as opposed to being in meetings all day, which we all are, seek to find alignment and solve their problems, right? So there's that. Another thing that we've been doing that I think is actually pretty successful is using open calls or open meetings. So someone will say, hey, I'm around today. I'm interested in speaking about this topic and trying to gain alignment around this. I've got a room open. If you have thoughts on it, drop in. Let's talk about it. I mean, you can just leave that open on your desktop while you're in other meetings or doing other work, right? And kind of jump back to it. And once I can answer this question, talk to this person. We found that to be pretty useful. And we're going to start doing more and more of that. The other thing that we're trying to embrace right now is having particular moments throughout the year where we can engage in person. Just because I think we're all grateful for the opportunity of remote work and being able to work from home on any basis. But there are costs. 
to that, right? And part of it is the cost of feeling connected to your fellow employees. And so what we're digging into right now is just trying to solidify a schedule of events that we can either smaller groups or the entire team can rally around to build that connectivity. There are people, I mean, that started during COVID that have never met each other, that work together every day. How do we foster a better sense of connection for those people? And for us, that is through limited events that we facilitate and pay for, right? And just try to create a little bit of gravity around. So lots of different things converging there. I think the biggest thing is we know that we don't have all the answers. How we work will continue to evolve, especially over the course of the next couple of years as we find ourselves in this new reality. There's a significant desire across gaming to go back to office. We all know that we can't just do that. And I think most of us don't want to. I think there's a balance to be found there. How can we incentivize and create opportunities for our teams where they can come in and engage with each other on a limited basis and get an understanding for the value of in-person work? Because there is there are a lot of wins to be had there just from being in the office even one day a week. I have a few friends, actually, also, you mentioned this, who have started new jobs over the pandemic, who work with teams who they've actually never met in person. And to me, that is just a wild concept to think that people now can work together and just never, never, ever meet aside from maybe seeing a video on screen. Going back to one of the things I was curious to just learn a little bit more about, you mentioned this open meetings. Is that a, like a channel within your Slack or is that a video conference that people can just drop into throughout the day? You can do either. What we found ourselves doing more is just creating an open channel on Teams. You just create a, a meeting that's open to everyone on Teams and people can drop in as time allows. And we found that works pretty well. Another thing that we want to experiment with more, especially as we uh, solidified our satellite locations with actual physical offices, <laughs> is the concept of always on meetings, uh, broadly right, communication. So we'll have those things up and you could rotate between them. So if you're in your office, just walking the halls, there'll be a couple of monitors up where those conversations are taking place. And you might not even know they're happening, right? But you can walk by like, oh, that's that's Jim. And oh, Sally's in there too. I wonder what they're talking about. Oh, and drop in and listen. I sit there and listen for a couple of minutes. Maybe you'll learn something. Maybe you'll have something to contribute. So there are a lot of things that we're experimenting with in that regard. And we will continue to do so. That's a cool idea of being able to just walk by and maybe jump into a conversation as if we were in person and you were jumping into a meeting. And I might try to steal that open meeting idea. That's something we've played around with is just having an open conference call, if you will, for people to just pop into. Again, yeah, I think that the, the biggest point of success there is having a framework. So I really understand like, you know, when we announce those on Slack generally and provide a link there, say, hey, this is the topic we're focused on today. Here are the particular things we're looking to get out of it. And that really helps tee up the conversation. So it's not just loosey-goosey, like you're making the most of your time spent in those channels. Yeah, I'm going to definitely play around with that idea. And speaking of the whole people aspect of the business, I know one of the key responsibilities that you have taken on as part of your role is really building out the team, creating process and documentation. I'm sure you could probably go into this in depth, but are there any just for other managers out there who are also building teams currently? Do you have any key takeaways or insights that you could share from your experience at Cinemax? There are a couple of things here that I think have really helped our success in terms of hiring. First is being very open and transparent about our values, what we're seeking to accomplish as a group, not just our product values, but our team values, right? This is what is important to us. And this is what we expect of each of our employees. 
being really forward with that is something that I think a lot of candidates aren't used to. There are a couple of studios in this industry that do that really well and have for a long time. They wear their values on their sleeve. Your first six months to a year there isn't even about tangible work. It's about engrossing yourself in those values and becoming one with your community of developers. There are puts and takes for that kind of approach. For us, it's more just being transparent about it and not just having a bunch of sayings on the wall, but trying to live and walk those values in how you interact with your employees and in your, in your colleagues every single day. So that's really helped. Another is being really transparent about where we are in the project, right? And leveraging the fact that everyone is under NDA and we have phenomenal lawyers to share a little bit about what's going on, where we really are, and the challenges that we're facing and the wins that we've had over the course of the last six months. Being able to see that as a candidate is really empowering because traditionally there have been a lot of closed door conversations right around this stuff where only in hushes and whispers do you get an understanding of what that team is trying to build. Maybe you have an inkling and it probably aligns with your skill set, but traditionally teams have been pretty low to, to share those things out of secrecy and sometimes out of a sense of pride. For us, that's not important. We're seeking to do something incredibly ambitious, incredibly innovative and relatively new and is you know, completely unknown by the public, right? So how do I get somebody excited about it if I can't talk about it? So finding ways to do that without giving away the farm has been really important for us. And I think that engenders a sense of trust almost immediately with candidates, which I think is really important, especially when you're doing this remotely and you don't have that opportunity to sit in a room with someone else and you know stare into their eyes and look at their body language and really get a sense for how the interview is going and what matters. I think creating that sense of trust from the outset has been really successful for us. Those are all really great points. And speaking of candidates and hiring, and you had mentioned this earlier that gaming was not something you knew you could get into as a career. For people interested or who have a great passion in gaming, just as a consumer and user, what advice would you have for them in terms of if they were interested in getting into the industry, whether as a, an artist or developer, what kind of steps could they take? How could they find their way into working for a company like yours in the future? Awesome. I, I love talking about this. First, there's more of the traditional path, the path that I followed that many people did years ago, the path of the tinkerer, right? Someone who takes existing software and plays with it and makes something of their own that represents their skill set and craft and what they're really interested in. That is still a great opportunity. I think the number of the creators have spawned out of various ecosystems over the course of the last couple of years. It's amazing to me what's possible these days. The second is to is to create a portfolio for yourself, right? A clear portfolio that's demonstrable of your work and where you've gotten better over time is incredibly important. Most hiring managers in this business have maybe five minutes, maybe 10 to look at your resume or portfolio at most. Like usually when I'm cruising through, it's like two minutes because that's the time that we get. And you're trying to make really difficult decisions on very talented people, right? There's just so many people that want to get into the games that the cream rises to the top because their work is demonstrable and it's clearly understood. And they have a, a portfolio that's easily accessible by a single click, right? And I can get to the heart of it in a second. I work with students all the time trying to craft these things, but that is really important. And often that is the output of what I would consider to be a third path, which is educational, right? So more than ever, there are a number of institutions that if you go through their programs, will give you a really good opportunity to land an entry-level job in this industry. 
Now, there are more than a few programs that don't give you the necessary skills or don't allow you to build a portfolio that hiring manager with two minutes has a chance to browse and say, hey, this person has potential. So you got to look out for that too. But there are a number of really, really great educational opportunities where you can get either an undergraduate or you know, a graduate degree in game development. And we look for those students all the time because often they're ready to go. And that makes my job as a hiring manager much easier than getting Johnny off the street who's, who's got a, you know, a physical flipbook portfolio, right? Um, so yeah, just making it digestible and making your information accessible and really clear as to what your skill set is and what your desires are will really help you to land a job in this business. That's great. And I know I asked specifically to get into gaming, but I feel like all those points are relevant for anyone in the creative industry looking to get ahead, particularly myself as a hiring manager. You do have to make snap judgments, unfortunately, within five minutes. Uh, and I tell students that I work with all the time, it's you got to think of the user experience of your own portfolio as if it's a product, right? How are you going to get across to me in the five minutes that I'm going to give you? I don't have time to click through and read a thousand words. So it's got to be catchy. Speaking of giving advice to students, I'm going to back this conversation out a little bit more. What advice would you give your younger self? I would say grin and bear it. Creating entertainment products is incredibly challenging. It rarely, if ever, works out how you expect. And your ability to roll with the punches and adapt is not only essential to survive in the entertainment business, I think it is essential to creating quality entertainment, especially if you can do it quickly and make deterministic choices in a rapid manner that will facilitate what you're trying to accomplish, right? Because building a large entertainment project is like steering a cruise ship. And it's really easy to keep going straight into the iceberg, right? But if you can make quick calls all the way down the chain, you can easily avoid those obstacles as well. So that would be it for me. I've managed to do that, but there have been a lot of ups and downs. And there were periods of this business where I seriously contemplated leaving this industry because of how challenging it is. And you could be doing a great job on your own. And there are large, unforeseeable circumstances that will hit you upside the head. And if you're not prepared for that and willing to adapt to those circumstances, it's really easy to fall out of game development and entertainment in general. I always love asking that question. I feel like while that is advice for your younger self, when I hear it from other guests on the show, I really can take a lot of that advice to heart because it relates so much to working and other people in the creative industry and just trying to you know, get ahead and make great products for end users. So. So we are coming to the end of our conversation. I know we've covered a lot of different information, a lot of different topics today. So to bring everything together, we do like to end these episodes with what we call our Majestic Bite, which is a key takeaway that our listeners can take from the conversation we've had today. Ben, could you share your Majestic Bite with us today? Yeah, I would say if you are building a team, if you do nothing else but operate on transparency and trust as a leading, as guiding principles, that you will find success, not just in terms of the product that you are seeking to deliver, but also with your peers, and you will be able to do it together. That has taken us a long way over the course of the last almost five years now, and I'm excited for where those guiding principles take us in the future. Awesome. Well, it's been great having you on the show today. Where can people go to find out more about you and your company online if they wanted to get in touch or just learn more about what you're doing? Sure. Yeah. You can always go to zenimaxonline.com. Check out more about our studio and our products. You can follow me on Twitter at, at bagelbeard. 
easily to reach there or uh, find me on LinkedIn. I'm one of the many Ben Joneses, but only maybe you have three <laughs> that are in the game development industry. Awesome. Thanks again, Ben, for your time today. And it was great having you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. You can see all the show notes and details related to this episode at majesticapps.com.